tonight on Arena. The Old Oak, The Creator and Flora and Son are the movies up for review. And we remember actor Michael Gambon, who has died at the age of 82. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Famed actor and Cabra-born Irishman, Michael Gambon has died at the age of 82. He was known for his work across TV, film and theatre in recent years. I suppose many will remember him as Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter films. But he famously starred in Dennis Potter's acclaimed BBC TV series, The Singing Detective. He was Father Jack in Pat O'Connor's film adaptation of Brian Friel's Dancing at Lunacy and Lord Ardalon in the Thaddeus O'Sullivan-directed Citizen Lane more recently. In theatre, among his many roles, he starred in the Gates production of Pinter's No Man's Land and as the Paycock in Judo and the Paycock at the Gaiety Theatre, along with numerous Shakespearean and Bicatian roles. Delighted to be joined this evening by Noel Pearson, producer of that Dancing at Lunacy film and also producer of the Gaiety Theatre's production of Juno and the Paycock that Gambon was part of. We are also joined by John Kavanagh, who was Joxer to Gambon's Paycock and also who worked alongside Gambon on Maigre and also director of Citizen Lane, Thaddeus O'Sullivan. Thaddeus, your your association with uh, Michael Gambon, uh, Citizen Lane is very recent, but it goes back a long way, both personally and professionally, I think. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, the first uh, film I made with him was Nothing Personal, uh, where he played a loyalist um, uh, later in the <clears throat> during the troubles in, in the north, and I I worked with him, but I also knew him uh, because I knew his partner and and his children quite well, and uh, <clears throat> saw him saw him socially. So he was a <clears throat> he was he be he be sorely missed. He was I think one of the most liked liked mm. actors around. And, uh, people really love to work with him. Yeah, and, and you, you, you're describing there that he played back in 1988, in 1998, the, nothing personal, um, yeah. uh, a, a loyalist gang, the leader of a loyalist gang. And in some ways, when, when I think of Michael Gambon and what, as you've just described him, I'm guessing that that character might have, might, may not have been the most savoury character in the world. He was able to do that and still be a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful guy as well. Yeah, I, I mean, he he was he was one of those actors who could uh, play um, as dark as dark as uh, as as was required. But uh, once he was uh, away from the camera, uh, you turn around and find him uh, playing practical jokes and being very light on his feet and being funny. And uh, he he couldn't take life seriously. He looked as if he couldn't take life seriously. I, I I suspect he probably did mm. quietly, and uh, he was quite private. But uh, on the face of it, your experience of him would always be a very uh, happy and uh, a jolly one, yeah. uh, Michael. I, I don't I don't recall ever him being being angry or or frustrated with with the with the work. 
And yeah. uh, certainly socially, he was a hoot. Uh, uh, John Kavanagh, uh, you, you had a couple of experiences of working with um, with Michael Gambon. I, I mentioned the Juno and the Paycock mm. version where you, yep. you were jocks or opposite Captain Boyle, the Paycock of the of the play's title. You also worked mm. with him on, on Maigret and you worked with him in the film version that, that we talked to Noel Pearson about shortly, in the film version of, of Dancing at Lunasa. Do you, do you have a similar type of memory of that kind of irreverent nature of when he was off the ball, as it were. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think some of the stories. I mean, it probably cannot. You probably wouldn't transmit them. But uh, <laughs> so I better not go there. Uh, but uh, he is something. He's, he's an extraordinary guy. I mean, he's up to uh, hello, Thaddeus. But he was up for lunch uh, Hi, lots John. of times in the house, you know. And uh, uh, he said, I mean, he's also reverent, funny, genie mm. Mac. He didn't take it all too seriously, you know. And uh, he was. Uh, but you, you never really knew where what he's telling was the absolute truth or not, you know. Like he told me that his uh, his granny used to take him to the zoo, or the zoo, and uh, well, because he lived in Fisborough. No, they didn't live in. They, lived, they told me he lived in Fisborough. And anyway, the granny used to take him to the zoo, and she'd she'd feed bits of apples to the monkeys with a little penknife. Mm. And the one monkey grabbed the penknife of her one day, and she was absolutely. Furious, so she went home. She got some sweets and she cut them in half, and she filled them with black pepper. And the next day, she went with Michael up to fed the monkeys, and and the monkey went crazy. She said, "You know, you won't do that again. You won't do that again." (laughs) And and was he giving you? Was he giving you the full vernacular? Was it the Azoo? And was it Fisborough? Oh yeah, and Fisborough. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, now, now no monkeys died. You know, we are so, you know, <laughs> totally aware of all the political correctness going on. Yeah, well, let, anyway, let, you know, anyway, it was a no, yeah, he did, yeah, I mean, he was marvelous. So he told me, so his uncle was a taxi driver, Tommy. He told me that he, he let him drive the car down O'Connell Street when he was nine years of age. <laughs> but I mean, he also was a member of a society that only had 11 members. They were all lords. And um, they did dress in um, 17th century armour before dinner. <laughs> <laughs> now, whether that's true or not, he also was a pilot. I mean, he had his own plane at one stage because he was an engineer. Yeah. And uh, he told me he took a guy up. Now, whether this was true or not, you don't know. Yeah. And he pretended to have a heart attack. And um, <laughs> uh, the rest is not leave to your imagination. But I mean, Crikey, he's uh, but it was a hilarious company. Yeah, wonderful well, man, let's, great actor. Yeah, yeah. let's have a listen Go to on. him because I'm, I'm I'm interested in the fact that he did say Fisborough to you and he did say the Azoo, because here he is yeah. talking. Here he is talking um, on the Late Late Show about Irish and English accents, and just listen to the way he slips Go between on. between both. You know, I, I've always felt Irish, and when I when I first um, uh, when I when I was in Dublin. But born here, that's how I used to talk. And then I slowly but surely came to England. And in England, in Camden Town, I was Irish. And then I heard people talking English like that, you know. So I started talking like that. <laughs> so, I, I, so I was like that, really, very English. But still, when I went home to see my mum and dad up the road in Camden Town, I spoke like that. Yeah. So I kept talking like that. And then some. <laughs> I heard people sometimes talking like that. Yeah, yeah. So I began to talk uh, very <laughs> like this, you know. <laughs> oh, hello. So lovely to see you. 
I'm delighted to see you. And then talking like that. Well, <laughs> I, I, I had an accident last night oh. and fell off the back of the car and I didn't know what to do. And then I saw it all like that. <laughs> Michael Gambon there, you know, Neil Tobin used to do it with, with, the, with the word two. It sounds as if Michael Gambon could bring us around, uh, around the islands with the, with the word that. Uh, Noel Pearson, oh, uh, yeah. Noel Pearson is, is, is also on the line with us. Noel, I suppose, I, I think you remember him or you first came across him as an actor watching him in The Singing Detective. Just remind us of what the nature of the character he was playing there. I thought he was amazing in the scene, Detective. He was dying. He was a character on um, a bed and the sweat was pouring out of him. And he, he was just amazing. And then then I met him. And uh, I think I, Dancing with Lunacy, he played the priest. Mm. And he mm. was extraordinary because he never, he never didn't take anything very seriously, you know. And he's always joking. He's chatting up the, the women, the girls in the show. And then he'd fall around the place laughing. But he, he was just um, an extraordinary actor insofar as that he didn't take life too seriously, you know. Now, that was to me, and I knew him for a good few years, and I, we used to meet up in London, and you never know what crack he was up to, you know. And he would always bring somebody that, he says, is it okay if I bring so-and-so, so-and-so, she's a friend, of mine, or he's a friend, of mine. and you never know who he showed up. And the last time I met him was a couple of years ago, um, bringing some... I'm bringing this one with me for dinner. Is that all right? And I says, I mean, when we arrived at the restaurant, he was with Lauren Bacall. <laughs> and I says, what? Yes, that was Lauren Bacall. And she was in, totally kind of looking at him and oh, and he sat there like, what's the big deal? You know, he was cool. He was lovely. He was great. It does sound. It does sound quite extraordinary. I'm bringing somebody to. I'm bringing somebody to dinner with me. It's Lauren Bacall, uh, John. John Cavanagh, Going back to you, um, yeah. Because uh, Noel mentioned there that he played Father Jack Mundy in in Dancing in Lunacy, which is a party. Yeah, yeah. You, you had played on stage. You might have got a chance, I suppose, to speak to him more about the craft of acting in that particular situation. Uh, did, no. Would he have discussed anything like that with you, or did he just turn it on when he had to turn it on? No. No, I just turned it on. I mean, I played the other Jack subsequently in the Gay Theatre. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, which I enjoyed. But uh, no, he, no, he, no, he didn't. I mean, I was in the scene. That, I mean, the, the scene that I was in was the the, uh, the school manager, the priest. Uh, mm-hmm. There was nothing to play. Oh yes, but, yeah. Uh, with Meryl Street, that was a lovely scene. But uh, I don't hardly met Michael on the set that time, really, because we'd be down out on different days, probably. But uh, uh, but I rem- do remember that production, Meryl Street asking me uh, could she bring her son on set to watch a rehearsal I mean that's the measure of the woman I've since worked with her a couple of times Fallon's mm. uh, Foster Jenkins was the last time I worked with her you know the book yes I yeah about Toscanini. this I played yeah. Toscanini in that oh it's a great film yeah and uh, yeah but that, that was my but I can still see him I still see Michael in the gear, you know, and the Father Jack's outfit and that, you know. He's such a present, because I knew him so well, but he'd go for lunch and everything. You know, we had some great crack. Yeah, well, if he was telling you stories... He was just like, he was a good old friend, you know, but I hadn't seen him in years, though, yeah. and he became kind of ill, I think, and we lost contact. Really. No, he was you know? ill the last couple of years. It was very sad. He Hello, Noel. How you, Noel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he was. was he, doing he was just... He was a one-off. Hmm. The simple as that. Absolutely. He was terrific. 
Yeah, I mean, did if everyone, uh, anyone took the stage, by goodness, did he take the stage? I mean, absolute presence, yeah. you know, wonderful presence that you would look to, and I, as we all all did when I was growing up mm. as a young fella in the Abbey Theatre, when there was a company there of thirty-five people, and you learned your craft, and people are saying, "No, that's the only way to learn your craft." It's by watching other people doing it, really, you know. And uh, I, I, I'm watching Gammon do it. You know, yeah. I mean, no matter how old you get, how experienced you are, you still learn from people like him. You know what I mean? Yeah, I learned from Sir yeah. watching him from the wings. Yeah, well, I'm just going to play. And, him, uh, I'll, I'll play a little section of him again. Here he is speaking with Marion Finucane, in fact, about the craft of acting, and it pretty much fits in, I think, John, with what you, John Cameron, with what you've just been saying, indeed, what Noel was saying right. too. And I might come back to, I'll come back to you, Thaddeus, off the back of this. So this is Ga- uh, Michael Gambon yeah. on stage acting. Well, you feel it. You read the script. You read the script that this play are going to do, and you all these things seep in. And they lurk inside your body and you feel them. And if you have to cry, you cry. And if, if you're happy, you, I, I, it's hard to explain. But you, you learn to build this stuff inside your head and your body and how you move, how your hands move, how you sit on a chair, how you express joy. These things just come to you. If you study acting, if you've been an actor for a few years, they just grow on you. It's Michael Gambon. Um, he, you just build these yeah. things inside your head and your body. Is what he said there, Thaddeus O'Sullivan. I mean, you as a director watching him on on screen, um, yeah. how would you describe what he did as an actor? Well, it, it's it's funny because when you hear him talk like that, that's about as serious as Michael yeah. ever got, I think. But it's also is uh, oddly enough, although it sounds a bit abstract. I think it is what a lot of actors can identify with. I think it's true that actors who um, who don't grow into it but are born into it, uh, that's how they are. And um, I think, you know, you have to create the right environment for them um, and and then then they can do what's required with, with the least amount of apparent effort. And that's what, what Michael did. He was... Uh, I, I don't recall even having uh, anything remotely like a complex conversation about a character. Mm. Uh, he was just so instinctive. Uh, it was extraordinary. Yeah, well, I suppose mm. if, if you've got instincts like that, you, you just go with them if you're lucky enough to have them. Uh, yeah, I, I, if you're I, lucky I, enough. Yeah, I, I'll play one more clip of him because I love this. This is how he got his first job at the gate. It would give Orson Welles a run for his money here in the story yeah, that he I know t- that story. Here he is again. I think it was, uh, again, it was with Marion Finucane that he was t- he's talking here about blagging his way into the gate. I flew to Dublin and I had an interview with him and I told him I was on my way to New York to make a film. I mean, unimaginable. And he believed that. And I said, well, would I be able to do your next play? Would that be an explain? He said, oh, certainly, yes. When are you back from New York? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I've been. I'll be back tomorrow. So I, <laughs> I ended up going to all over Europe with McLeamo's company doing Othello. Right. I didn't have a big part just walking on. Yeah, you may not have a big part, but there's no such thing as small parts when you're an actor of the size of Michael Gambon. Finally, um, I'll, I'll go to each of you in turn. Noel, uh, how do you think we should remember Michael Gambon this evening? Noel Pearson. Oh, just... Apart from being a brilliant actor and a great actor, he was one of the most decent fellows you could ever meet, you know. He was he was just a wonderful mm. guy, you know. He'd lost. 
And Thaddeus, Thaddeus O'Sullivan? Yeah, great presence. Uh, it was just great to have him on the set. Uh, and as a friend, he was just uh, so uh, open uh, to everybody. He would he would talk to anybody uh, and, and tell them what he was doing and what he thought about what he was doing. He would always make it make it light, of course, like we're all saying. But he would he was he was a great communicator. And finally, uh, to, to yourself, John Cavan, another actor who possesses a few good instincts. Let's say, <laughs> let us be honest. I absolutely I concur with Bolton, uh, with Thaddeus and uh, Noel. And I was just say, apropos of what I was saying earlier on, of watching older actors and learning from them, doing your apprenticeship learning your craft. I was watching Cyril Cusack from the side of the stage and I was saying to him, oh, Mr. Cusack, and he'd say, boy, yes. And I'd say, yeah, I thought that it was terrific. He was so naturalistic. He said, no, boy, it's not naturalism, it's composure. And that's exactly what Camden had. Composure. Yeah. Well, God rest you, Michael. Yeah, well, what a lovely God way to, to finish him, yeah. up. Thank you, to, thank you to all three of you, Noel Pearson, Thaddeus O'Sullivan and John Kavanagh. Thanks for being with us this evening on Arena. Remembering Michael Gambon, whose death was announced today, he was 82. And we'll move on to film reviews now on this Thursday evening. But before we do so with Arlene Hunt and Donald Clark. Donald, just picking up on what Thaddeus O'Sullivan, Noel Pearson and John Kavanagh were mm. speaking about there. All of them at great pains to point out the, the great affability, uh, the man that mm. was. But in terms of, of the actor, it's easy to forget what he achieved. Dumbledore, of course, is the is the most recent thing. But there's a huge body of work behind him, both in theatre and on screen. There was. I mean, I think the thing that's worth remembering is that he came to fame relatively late, nonetheless. I mean, he was actually a, mm. a hugely successful theatre actor in the 1970s. A lot of Pinter and so forth at the uh, National Theatre when it moved to South Bank. But it didn't really kind of hit with audiences until The Singing Detective in 1986, yeah. when that's when he really went mainstream, as it were, and probably didn't have the film career that he could have had. I mean, if you look at the films that came out of that in the next 30 years or so, he was certainly almost offered work. But, I mean, he never got close to an Oscar nomination, for example, which is something yeah. you feel that he really should have got. But, yes, I mean, he was tremendous in The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover in yeah. the late 1980s at um, Gosford Park, The Insider. I mean, I would just, if we're giving a hoot out for a, for a performance people will overlook in this conversation, um, a good performance in a bad film, I would say he's great in Dad's Army. <laughs> well, he is the natural successor to the great Arnold Ridley as Godfrey. Yeah. I mean, everyone's very well cast in that film and unfortunately the script was terrible but um, uh, I would certainly re- recommend fast forwarding that if you ever get a chance because he's, he's, he's a wonderful Godfrey <laughs> oh there you go uh, The Cook, The Thief, The Wife and His Lover that's worth tremendous back well, to yeah. yeah and he was superb in that alright let us turn our mind then to more recent cinema releases that last week in fact new science fiction film The Creator is set against uh, the backdrop of a war between humans and robots with guess what Artificial intelligence, where a former soldier finds a secret weapon, a robot, in the form of a young child. In director Ken Loach's latest and possibly last film, The Future for the Last Remaining Pub, The Old Oak in, the vill- in a Village in Northeast England, is under threat, where people are leaving the land as the mines are closed. Houses are cheap and available, thus making it an ideal location for Syrian refugees. But we'll start this evening with Flora and Son, where a single mother played by Eve, Eve Hewson is at war with her 
her son Max, trying to find out uh, find a hobby for him. She rescues a guitar from a skip and finds that one person's rubbish can be a family salvation. Donald Clark is here, as is Harley Hunt, uh, and they have seen all three films. And um, John Carney here, the man behind Once and Sing Street. Uh, Eve Hewson and Joseph Gordon Levitt are the, the the mother and son in in this particular case. Uh, Arlene, is that no, is, no, no, he's not. No, he's not. He's, he's I think he's older. I think he's, he's a bit too old, old for that, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's ten years older than her. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Maybe he's not her no, son then. No, he's not her son. <laughs> so Eve Hewson and Joseph Gordon Levitt are there now. Tell yes. me about her and her son. So um, Flora, uh, she. So Flora's a, a, a very hard-bitten, mm. hard-nailed, working-class young woman and she lives in a shoebox flat with her son, Max. And they're at odds with each other. You know, he's a teenager, he's rebellious. They don't seem to get each other at all. They seem almost irked by each other but having to spend yeah. any time together. Um, so when she's over in the leafy south side and she leaves her employer's house, she finds a, a, a guitar in a skip. And she's actually forgotten it was his birthday the day before. So she thinks, I'll go get this guitar fixed up and I'll give it to him as a gift and that'll make everything all right. Imagine giving a teenager, mm. you know, who's really techno music and stuff like that yeah. and, and rapping and she gives him a, like an old acoustic guitar. So you can imagine how well... His delight. You can imagine how well that went down, you yeah. know. And so... They have a terrible row about it. He leaves the house and, and she's stuck with this guitar. Um, and it should be pointed out that her ex-husband was a bass player and is he's actually very very well played in this, you know, a professional bass player. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so she's got a, a grow for music and a good ear yeah. for music anyway. So she decides that she doesn't want the guitar to go to waste. If her son doesn't want it, maybe she'll use it. So she goes online to see if she can find out how to play guitar online, like download YouTube and and, and find this. And through this medium, she meets up with uh, Jeff. Played by Gordon. Gordon. Not her son. And he's this this hippie, gentle kind of SoCal, maybe a slightly failed musician himself, but so he teaches online. Okay, so let us um, go to a scene that, uh, now that I see it, Oren Kinlan, of course, who is is the son of Lawrence Kinlan? He is Lawrence Kinlan's son. It's terrifying to think that Lawrence Kinlan's... uh, Uh, Yeah, uh, I guess why I'm uh, double-checking myself before (laughs) I say something else. He's still a kid. I mean, he's only about, I think, 14 or 15 when he shot the films. Don't worry, Lawrence Kinlan's son isn't now 40 or anything. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Here, here is um, the aforementioned Oren Kinlan and Eve Houston as uh, f- uh, Flora, the, his mother, and they're, he's, he's trying to kind of teach her the type of music that he really wants to play. Put your give, skip your acoustic guitar back in the skip and give me something like this, ma, please. <laughs> You know how much I want you Like a ghost, I'm going to hunt you Meet me at my crib, bring your friends Maybe we can drive a Mercedes Benz We'll hang out poolside, have a drink Swimming against the tide, not gonna sink Come on girl, let's get in trouble Shaking off stir the James Bond from Dublin What's it called? Dublin 07, like James Bond, but Dublin Ah, you need a better title Let me try something here I'm the Joker with the Glasgow smile, ready to die for you. I go in style, dressed from head to toe, in Italian, in the bed. I'm like a stallion. <laughs> there you go, Oren Kinlan as Max, Eve Houston as Flora, mother and son. Now, I, I have to say, 
Maybe it's it's my penchant for dad jokes, but I found that lyric absolutely delightful. I think I think it's pitched perfectly because it's it's not brilliant. No one's going to confuse yeah. it um, uh, with Tupac, but yeah. at the same time, it works well within its own terms, and it's believable that somebody in that position could actually have mm. created it. I think the whole film's really charming. Yeah, because like, John Carney. Let's face it. I, I, I don't want to kind of reduce it in any way, but he he does feel good films. Perfectly. Well, he's. I mean, he's quite frank about this. I mean, I talked to him last week about this. I mean, he, you know, he recognised the fact that he has found a niche, that he's mm. found a subgenre within the musical that he's made his own. And you know, he was saying to me that, like, you know, that's a great thing to have achieved. If you yeah, can manage yeah. that within cinema, if you manage to find your own little niche, then that's something. That's after all what Stanley Donen did. It's what Jacques Demy did within the musical. And if John can find this area within, he works and it works and, and continues to make good films. Then that, that's a remarkable thing to have done. And I think this is, it is, I would say, of the of that stream of musicals that started off with Once and then you had Begin Again, which is maybe the, yeah. under, the underrated one, I think, yeah. despite being the most expensive film with all the biggest movie stars. I think it's a terrific film, not a film people don't talk about as much as they talk about Once and who, talk who about. Was the, uh, um, it was Kieran Knightley and Mark Ruffalo yeah. um, and, and others. At, yes. um, and a really good film. And then, um, obviously, Sing Street. Sing Street, yeah. Which was a bit a bit of a success to Steam. Uh, I think this is probably the smallest of all these films, almost in a way smaller than Once, despite the fact that Once yeah. was just people wandering about. Because it, even it had its big moments. Um, I think this is a, a slight film, but none none the worse none the worse for that. Yeah. And what about um, the performances, Arlene Eve Houston? As this is possibly a little bit out of her. Is it out of her comfort zone? In that is yeah, probably the rougher side she's, of town. She's, she's you know she's yeah, and she, uh, she I've known her to play more stoical characters mm. and more buttoned down characters, yeah. and here she's. Larger than she's larger than life in every moment that she's on screen, you know, her, and she's and volatile. That's what it needs, is it? Yeah, because yeah. she's volatile, and she, you know, she has to be kind of tough. But there's a vulnerability to her that it just seeps out, you know. And her yeah. heart is, you know, her heart is very vulnerable, even though she's got this really hard carapace out the front, you know, the yeah. gum, gum chewing, gum chewing, because I mean, clearly they they're aware of the fact that you have somebody who have we mentioned Bono yet? Yeah. <laughs> have we got through the same review? It's unfair. So far it's unfair on her that it kind of has to happen eventually. Yeah, but yeah. I mean. But there is a, a genuine, obviously, question mm. here about people are now a lot more sensitive about um, people from privileged, back, privileged backgrounds yeah. playing yeah. people from working class backgrounds or this, the issues applies across race and religion and all kinds of things. And somebody who comes from her sort of background playing a working class character, I think, for me, that wasn't an issue. I mean, she handles the accent quite well, I think. I think the accent's not a problem. But also, you're in a world with the John Carney, the Carney musical, the Carney music, yeah. that um, you're essentially in a kind of fancy world. You're, you're not in this gritty is realism. Not, this is n- exactly. This is yeah. not a version, a real version yeah, yeah, this of the This is not, you know, this is not Strumpet City. Yeah. This is very, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quaint, it's funny, and it's cute, and it's got oozles of charm. I mean, well, I was saying... Yeah, I, I, let, let, let's put stars on it because otherwise sure. we'll, we'll be the other two to talk about. By all means. But uh, I, I, think, I think you both enjoyed it. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, very much. I gave it four out of five. And Donald, oh, four confidently, yes, very much so. Four confidently and a four from Marlene. Can't wait to see it. Let us move on then uh, to... Um, this comes from Gareth Edwards, writer-director of Rogue One Godzilla. 
comes a sci-fi action thriller set amidst a future war between the human race and the forces of artificial intelligence. I, I almost yawn as I read that. <laughs> Don't yawn. Don't oh, yawn. good. I shouldn't yawn. Uh, I can understand why you might. We are kind of in a world... Um, mm. Cinema these days seems devoted to the huge budgeted science fiction film, but the budgeted mm. science fiction film that increasingly is part of, already part of a franchise, is already part of a machine that's been ticking along for decades, and that's not the case with um, Garth Edwards. An interesting director who's debut Creatures, which must have come out a decade or so ago, was as much a kind of romantic road movie as it was um, a creature mm. flick. Um, it was based around a kind of post-apocalyptic world where these giant creatures move around the place, but actually was more focused on the personal story between the two characters. Um, this is a more conventional science fiction film than that, but it's still certainly not going to be confused with the cookie-cutter stuff that we're getting from um, the franchise machines and the big studios, those is, is this ultimately from uh, uh, Disney, Disney, I would say, nonetheless. But it's not to be confused with those those right. those those um, unimaginative things that are clinking along to the franchise beat. It, what it reminded me, I mean, the first, the thing you come away with most, I think, you come away whistling the visuals, as it were. Right. It, it's absolutely beautiful. It looks and good, which is always a good thing for a film. absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. And it, it looks to me like almost like a tribute to those people who created those fam- those those beautiful covers for science fiction novels, science fiction paperbacks from the, from the right. 50s through to the 70s. Imagined worlds, which often didn't actually appear in the books themselves. But you have that kind of sensibility working that the way kind of it. A, a and just aesthetic, right? wonderful um, Joshua is a character played by John David Washington and he's in contact in the clip I'm about to play with Colonel Howell played by Alison Johnny uh, what do I need to know about the kind of the <laughs> dynamics here I, I, Howell I can... is terrifying that's what you need to know and remember <laughs> right so Alison Johnny is amazing absolutely terrifying amazingly terrifying and, and she's not happy who's Joshua who's the, the John David Washington character he would have been part of he, he would have been part of a, he was undercover at the start of the film working for mm. the government and uh, he had infiltrated the AIs and they were looking for the original creator okay. and then the undercover was pulled uh, prematurely and caused devastation yeah. for him personally so he doesn't want to go back into undercover work again but then I don't think people say no to Howell Right okay well <laughs> here he is Joshua played by John David Washington getting in contact with the absolutely frightening seemingly Colonel Howell played by Alison Janney to tell her about the robot's secret weapon Colonel. Taylor, where's Shipley? I'm with him right now. He's in, he's in pretty bad shape. All right, listen to me. Did you locate the weapon? Yeah, it's here. I'm with it. Describe it. It's a kid. It, it, it's a kid. They make it into some kind of kid. It, that, that's the weapon. What? Colonel, look. I can't reach you. You have to bring it to me. Do you understand? No, Shipley can't move. I mean, he's, he's not looking good at all. Police are everywhere. I don't know how I'm getting out right now. I don't even have an exercise right now. Then you know what you have to do. Kill it. What? Look, Colonel, I... How? There we go. Yes, she is absolutely frightening, isn't she? Isn't Johnny? You wouldn't say no to her. Uh, Joshua, played by John David Washington, and the secret weapon is an AI child from the creator. And the reason I was saying to Donald Arlene about Ion is because when I see artificial intelligence, I mean, think, we're not going to get any kind of sensible debate here about the positive the possible positives of artificial intelligence versus the possible negatives of artificial intelligence. And if you're at a certain age and you grow up with a Terminator, you always think that 
AI is never going to be good no matter what happens mm. you know if they if the robots gain control then we're all pretty much scooped. I think also that in this film that they're they're uh, their allegorical role is almost more important than the literal role, right. by which I mean there's an allegory here clearly about the United States' um, behaviour after 9-11, because in this case they overreact to the threat from the AIs and set out to destroy all AI all right, humanoids, so basically. Uh, which and, is- and everyone around them. They're, 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 mm. They don't discriminate. They have this huge warship yeah. uh, in the but sky. But it almost feels more yeah. about the allegory than about yeah. the actual the core mm. um, well they make no story. difference they make no differentiation between the innocent and the guilty mm. they, they'll wipe out entire villages yeah. to get what they want if they're suspicious of that oh, village yeah. Yeah. well there's also there's clearly also a Vietnam thing going on yeah. as well which is really obvious not least for the fact that it was set in Southeast Asia so it's actually set more or less in Vietnam yeah. I think for large parts of it and and um, the the uh, the director here, Gareth Edwards, um, is, is this of is this typical of what he gives us? Would you say? Oh, yeah, clearly he's got a thing, and and, mm. and his thing is a kind of visual poetry that he runs through traditional science fiction. And you, I mean, he had he had a difficult time with Rogue One, mm. but I think ultimately at the end of that that first fusion of Star Wars stuff that we, what we got um, from Disney, I think that film ended up being the one film we were most happy with, uh, despite the fact there was a very troubled production that went well over budget and they had reshoots, all those usual stories. Um, but uh, He came away from that and then shot this film, which looks like it cost a fortune, but in fact cost, well, it did cost a fortune in any in human terms, of course, with eighty million, <laughs> but that's about a, but that's about a third of what Rogue One know, cost. So it's yeah. actually relatively good. But yes, the, the, uh, to answer your question more directly, yes, the, he has this thing of sort of visual poetry running through traditional science fiction, which you definitely got in Creatures, and you still get here. Um, it's a bit overstuffed because not only do you have all those analogies I mentioned earlier, the Vietnam thing, yeah. on the nine eleven thing, there's also it's also running full of all kind of references to other films. There's a very clear aliens bit in right. the stuff with Alison Johnny, Alison Johnny, they're all packed into this vehicle traveling to go and you know get yeah, the bad guys uh, like the start of aliens and there's a very much an apocalypse now thing going on so there are lots, lots of yeah, references there is there enough in it though if you know it's lovely if you get all those references and then the allegorical thing that that donald is talking about there arlene is there enough in the film to hook me in even if i don't it's, i don't want to know it's pure adventure it's yeah, pure I adventure I, I genuinely would tell you it's pure adventure it isn't all like hocus pocus ai okay. or that. it's okay. ge- it's genuinely pure adventure it's adrenaline rush it's it's let's go it's a story yeah i all of i mentioned hangs around kind of a really kind of powerful pulpy story of the old school so i think i, I wouldn't be too concerned about yeah. the reservations I I'm made not going on. to get. I'm, I'm not going to get my debate about AI in this one. This isn't the you're film not to really know. I would say you, they don't <laughs> no. really dress that yeah, much. Okay. It's just there. Yeah. Uh, so what are you saying overall? Oh, and I can stars, give it a, uh, give it a, a chirpy uh, four out of five. A chirpy four, a chirpy four, out, four out, out of five. five. And Donald? Uh, four, definitely, yeah. It's oh, quite well, an achievement. Jeepers, you're into accord this evening and you've had a very good time so far. Let us move on to our third and final film this evening directed by Ken Loach. Pub landlord in a previously thriving mining community struggles to hold on to his pub, which is called the Old Oak. Meanwhile, tensions rise in the town when Syrian refugees are placed in the empty houses in the community. Arlene, um, this this is real Ken Loach territory and bringing, like it's so up to date really when you oh, think yeah. about what he's addressing here. Yes, there's the hangover from the miners' strike with the yeah. dying mining village, but then bringing the Syrian refugees in here. It's he has a, a real sharp he, move. He, he, he's like uh, I've known him since Kess. Yeah, and I was traumatized by it as a child. I think a lot am. of a lot of people were, <laughs> and he, but his eye and his ear for social issues and, and for things that like affect the little people, the small people, mm. the poor, the disenfranchised is as sharp now as it ever was. 
Like he understands, he understands, um, he understands broiling anger, you know, under the surface anger. Like he really does understand it. He understands where it comes from. He understands the real villains behind it. And he understands why people. So in that way, he yeah. doesn't, he's not a judging man. He's not judging people for their for their failures or their, their lack of compassion or their lack of humanity. He doesn't judge them. Well, what he does is he blows it wide open so that you see it for what it is. Yeah, and he, it, 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 this, the pub is an important setting here. Mm. And when we first go into the pub, we, we're, we're the bundle of white males is what we have yeah. in there. And they are given out about everything. They probably voted for Brexit, you can presume. <laughs> and the presumption might be, all right, these are going to be made idiots of and they're going to be turned into, they're going to be presented as racists. He gives us a little bit more nuanced a view of those men than that, I think, Donald. I think so. I mean, I think the, the pub, as you say, is, it, it's a good environment to have, a good, a good centre to have for the story because, as you say, it's kind of underpopulated when we first mm. encounter it and throughout the film. And you're aware this would have place that would have been teeming whenever the mines were still running yeah. um, uh, before the Thatcher administration. I felt this film demonstrated a degree of Loach's strengths and quite a few of his more recent weaknesses. I think Laverty's script is absolutely sincere and it, it has that emotional grip on... Uh, it, it treats well the emotional grip the mining industry still holds over yeah. people um, long ago after they've been driven above ground. But it also has a great, a fair bit of mawkish sentimentality that I found greater with me. And also... I mean, the two leads are excellent. Um, I would say Dave Turner and Ebla Marie. Dave Turner is the is the, the TJ Valentine. The, yeah, the is the, he is, owns is the pub, and, and she is the uh, young uh, um, Syrian photographer who arrives. Yeah. But some of the non-professional acting, I think, is shaky. You know, when you get that right, it can be terrific. But yeah. you get it wrong, you know, you're looking at non-professional actors. And there are too many bits of mawkish sentimentality which had me groaning. There's a thing with a dog, which I won't go into the precision when more precise than that, but. It struck me, and I'm Paul Arvidi may say I'm completely wrong. That's the kind of thing that he must must have actually happened. Somebody mm. must have told him this story because you wouldn't write it otherwise. Yes, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's so unlikely, and you know, and uh, and so sentimental. And that I thought was a bit of a letdown for me. And it has been a problem occasionally with the films yeah. that Laverty has written for Loach the last few years. Um, didn't destroy the film for me, but I was, it was yeah. those things were nagging me at me. And throughout. it does run a, a lengthy one hour and fifty six minutes, and you wondered if there was a little bit of nip here and there. <laughs> yeah, and you lost some of those. How strong a Film would you have what if you got those because his strengths when his they're strengths in are, place are I, extraordinary. I, would, I agree with his strengths are fantastic and they are as I said they're sharp as ever. Yeah, but I also I found that scene with the dog clunky as heck. Yeah, well we can't uh, say what the scene no, of the dog no, is. We shan't, no. don't worry. Yeah. But compared to the other scenes, yeah. you know, and, and the compassion that's shown and and the the, the the beginning of understanding between cultures and the beginning of understanding but it's between the understanding ages. Itself, and again, it won't be any more precise than that. Incredibly kind of sudden and a bit too dramatic in the end. I, I yeah, felt, no, I, I, it, I felt it is, nah, but not quite But you know what this. you said about Carney, where you're you're living in a Carney world. Oh, but I don't but think, I think you are a, living in that world. And it's Ken no, Lotrim. I think Ken Lotrim is trying to lean more towards. Yeah, no, I guess. The, 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 the realism and all that. Yeah, the realism. And that yeah. doesn't mean that, that does not, not suggest yeah. that Dan Lodestones are actually set in, in a similar crumb of reality. I, but I, nonetheless, you are leaning more in that direction than you I would am be. hoping that tomorrow I will get a chance to continue this debate because mm. I will be speaking with Ken Loach, all being well at some stage tomorrow. And if all being well with that, we will certainly be putting it out tomorrow night. That is the plan. So we will be able to get a little bit further into the film with him. Overall, what are you saying? And stars, Donald? Uh, mid ranking Ken Loach, I'm saying. Uh, 
three stars from mid ranking Ken Loach three. I gave Arlene. it three. I said I thought it was thoughtful, but a little clunky in places, and I gave it three. All right, and a pretty solid three from you as well. So three films that Donald Clark and Arlene Hunt speaking to us about this evening: The Old Oak, The Creator, and Flora and Son. Married couple Sherilyn and Michael are having dinner one evening when he asks her how happy she is. Uh-oh, you think there's trouble in paradise. They live in a very nice house. They love their cat. They love their dog. He's a teacher and she owns her own hairdressing salon. This is a Gary Mitchell play, however, with the name Burnt Out. And before long, the couple's differences over whether or not to have children are not are the, the, are the least of their worries as Bonfire Night approaches in Belfast and those involved in uh, establishing the bonfire are them over there, as they're refer- referred to, take an interest in the married couple, Cheryl and Michael. Gary Mitchell is, of course, an award-winning writer from East Belfast. You may remember his plays at the Peacock in the 1990s in Little World of Our Own, As the Beast Sleeps and others plays, which explored a Northern Ireland working-class Protestant world that we didn't often see on stage. Delighted to be joined by Gary Mitchell and director Jimmy Fay, uh, who joined me from Belfast. And and Gary, I'll start with you. When I started reading the script today and and it got across... Cheryl and Michael and I thought all right so we're going to have a discussion here about whether that whether they're going to have children or not and I found myself laughing out loud at their situation <laughs> you, you really you really wound us in before you started punching us in the in the guts and um, what was the intention in in writing burnt out or how, did you know what the intention was when you started out that was my intention I like to lure people in <laughs> trap them and then beat them up metaphorically yeah of course but um, no I wanted to explore this area and you know uh, Jimmy commissioned this way back six years ago and um, the the thing about it is that this topic hasn't changed it hasn't moved on it hasn't progressed and it's something that's in my opinion needs to be addressed and there's you know this idea that bonfires just continue every year and uh, some people don't like them and some people like them but no one wants to talk about them and that's the real problem for for Cheryl and Michael, for the fictional couple here. Um, there, you know, there, there's a sense that there's low level intimidation, if that is is a even a fair term to use beside the words intimidation. There's low level intimidation to start out with, but it becomes more and more difficult and and more and more intimidating as the play progresses. At the thought that perhaps they have complained about this potential bonfire, they have nowhere to turn. That's right. Well, Michael and Cheryl are what I would say social climbers. You know, they've left their working class beginnings or even underclass beginnings in Michael's case, and they're trying to live a middle class lifestyle. So the horror that a bonfire would be just across the street from them um, really frightens them. And the fact that the people start to come to <laughs> come to their house asking for wood and then asking as it gets closer, asking, can they use the toilet in the middle of the night? And this is just ruining their lives. And uh, and even though they're not the people who complain, the paranoia then kicks mm. in and they start to turn on each other and it starts to go bad. And the paranoia uh, of Jimmy Fay is, is, must be heightened <laughs> by the presence of Michael's brother, a man called Donny, who, even as a character, this is not a person I ever want to meet, even if all the lights are on in the street and I can see everything, whatever, but even, uh, you know, down a dark alleyway. This is an extraordinary piece of creation, this this character of Donny. 
Um, absolutely. Hi, it's Sean. Uh, Donny, it's played by Keelan Byrne. And uh, he is. He's the brother who wants to drag Michael back to the past. That's it. He's the older brother. He didn't get the breaks that Michael got. That's what he feels. Mm. And so he's got a chip on his shoulder and uh, he wants the nice house. He wants, you know, what Michael seems to have with his marriage and, you know, he's in love with Cheryl. And he's just a malevolent suburban Norse character that makes everything worse and worse and worse every, as the play goes on. And and the other aspect is, in, is he's in love with Cheryl, who's his brother's wife. Uh, or, yeah. uh, maybe in lust with her would be maybe a better way of describing it. But he's also involved with a woman who's referred to as a liaison officer for the committee. This is a woman called Leslie. Um, how would you describe her, uh, first of all, Jimmy? And I'll go back to... To Gary, no, Leslie. I mean, Leslie is like much younger. She's yeah. one of the younger characters in it, and so she's bringing in this kind of ideology of kind of like. I mean, it's all about the bonfire now. In a, in a sense, what they're bringing in is like uh, they, they they resent Cheryl and Michael, okay, and they want to kind of manipulate them as much as possible and get as much. They're, they're grifters. Both Leslie and yeah. uh, Donnie are grifters. And what I like about Leslie is she's this continuation on. She has no thought outside what Donnie is teaching her. And so she's going to kind of, um, you know, be very much a kind of like, a, I almost want to say like, a, well, no, I, you know, she, she's just a mini feckin', you know, uh, criminal. And she, she's going to manipulate and seduce Michael. And she's going to take that whole house down and get as much out of it as she possibly can. And the other side, what, what struck me particularly in the case of Leslie, Gary, was a couple of times she says it, in fact, I think Donny might say it along the way as well, but she comes over to use the toilet and because she's amazed by how gorgeous the toilet is. It's a bit like the toilet in her granny's house, uh, but she, and she uses, she, she constantly refers to financial aspects. She said, we wouldn't be rich enough to have a toilet like that. And while we, we kind of half laugh at it when we read it, and I presume when people see it on the stage, there'll be lines of Leslie's that we laugh at. But she's making a very serious economic point, or a point around economics and the reality of living when you're, you know, up against it financially all the time. I'm guessing that was a, an important aspect of the story for you, Gary. Absolutely. Well, I come from uh, Rathcool, which is actually in North Belfast. And um, I think people there, I grew up really 99% Protestant and uh, hardly anybody had a job. Nobody had any money. Things deteriorated over time and things have got a lot worse, obviously. But what I wanted to talk about in the, in this play or, or, or demonstrate was this idea that you know, if, if you're not better than a Catholic, who are you better than? And you grow up with this mentality. And now we're in a situation where really when you look at it, Catholics are better than Protestants. And Protestants are sitting saying, hold on a minute. If we're not better, who are we better than? And then they're looking at other Protestants and saying, how come they have lovely houses? How come they have everything? But they don't come to our bonfire. They've betrayed us. And that's what it's really about. Yeah, and in some ways, you know, when and I spoke about the, your plays earlier on in the in the nineties, in particular in Dublin, and the, the the threats and the intimidation that you lived through, I mean, you know, had to move out and had to get away from the. You were kind of forced out of your own community. Uh, this story tells a, a post troubles version of that kind of, you know, pushing people out. Is it a case that yes, the troubles are over, but the the intimidation has just become about something else. 
Well, from my perspective, I see maybe maybe the Catholic versus Protestants troubles are over, but Protestants versus Protestants troubles are really only beginning, because there are you know there there is a real feeling of. Uh, some Protestants are real Protestants, and other Protestants are sellout Protestants. And uh, you know, for example, in my in in my situation, I was on TV winning an award in Dublin. So if if you, I lived in Rathcoole at the time. So if if you're walking around Rathcoole and somebody says, well, you know, why why are the Fenians giving you an award? You, you you they must like you, and if they like you, it must be because you hate us. And and this is the kind of mentality that we're struggling with in this play. Jimmy, you're coming to, obviously, you've been working as artistic director of the Rig for a number of years now, but you're coming to, to this post-troubled society and this post-troubled play with a very different set of eyes. But do you see parallels? Yes, it's quite definitely a Belfast story and the, mm-hmm. the tune that we're hearing or the, the lyrics that we're hearing are Belfast lyrics. But I'm mm-hmm. wondering, is the tune this kind of intimid- intimidation from within a community to those who are trying to better themselves or trying to do something else? Is is that a universal story? Well, I just remember what, you know, when Gary's play, Little World of Her Own, went on in the Abbey, and I was a staff director there. And, and my background is I'm from Tala, you know, which is a vast working estate, West Dublin. And then I remember seeing, I knew nothing about loyalist Protestant culture, you know, not really at all. And then going to see this play that Colin Morrison directed in a magnificent production mm. with Lola Ruddy and being blown away, but also feeling parallels, weirdly enough, you know, and you know, a little bit, you know, in terms of there was a kind of working class, there was a criminal element, not that Tala has that, you know, very much, but there is an element there that sometimes was, was there, particularly back in the 80s, and these vast estates where people walk around. And then when I came up, you know, and ran the lyric, I mean, Gary had, had gone through the troubles that he'd gone through, and I sought him out, I wanted to work with him and because of that, and, you know, we discussed this, and I, I was interested in him writing a play about his... Um, his experiences of what happened to him, and this is the result burnt out, you know, which he's fictionalized mm. brilliantly, I think. I mean, I think, I mean, the thing about Gary also is I think he's a terrific writer of dialogue. I mean, I think actors respond really well. We have an amazing cast in this who are just singing this, you yeah. know, and um, everything is set in the one room which I also love as well. You know, you're not trying to pretend to be a film or anything, although I think yeah. it would make a great film. You are setting it. It's a purely theatrical experience, okay? And the actors are just like playing arias off each other because the intensity, the malevolence, the violence that's uh, under it is really relatable to, yeah. you know? It's and not just, just a specific culture, I don't think. Yeah, one, one question on that before I want to finish with Gary, which is, you know, I'm guessing that... It, 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 the, the the temptation here would be to play this for laughs, but if you if you play it absolutely straight, it will contain both the menace and the comedy. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think it's all fun and games until it isn't. That's exactly what I felt reading it. This is hilariously funny, except it's not because it's it's way too serious uh, to to be funny, and um, because it, it precisely does that. But Gary, to you on on, on that. How is it now for you in in respect of that type of intimidation and the type of story that we're that we see in Burnt Out? Are things easier for you now? I think things are the way things are, you know, and they'll always continue to be that way. But I think the people who uh, wanted me out got me out. I am out. I remain out, and um, I think that's job done. <laughs> but you, hopefully, you, you are you are writing the plays, which I suppose is a way of saying. Yeah, this is what happened to me. Yes. 
<laughs> yes, but let's let's hope they're not uh, coming to the theatre. <laughs> All right, well, stay safe. I hope and they do it. They'll learn stuff, you know. That could well be a very well well learned lesson. Thanks to both of you, Jimmy Fay and Gary Mitchell. There talking about the play Burnt Out, which opens at the Lyric Theatre Belfast on the 11th of October. Previews from the 7th. It runs through until the 4th of November. Details at Lyric Theatre. Dot co dot uk and that is our lot for this Thursday evening see if I can remember everybody who works on the programme Leah Murphy Paula Shields uh, researched uh, Ashley Grufferty was on sound this evening Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator and the programme was produced by who's your man oh yes the programme was produced by Olin McGowan thank you very much to one and all I will be back with you tomorrow night 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 John Creedon will be with you after the news